0: From January 6th of 1966, a complete episode, The Spell of the Yukon and the Antarctic, dedicated to uh, our weather today. And we're just going to cut the first minute, maybe we'll end on time. Here's Gene. you before we're finished with this program there will be four break-in flash announcements to announce that there are no announcements about the strike so be ready for it that's, that's called dynamic non-news yeah. That thing tonight. Hello. There, we're on. Blowing that thing tonight. Oh, uh, I, I'm uh, delighted to report, for those of you who have not yet seen it, that you can now buy at any candy counter, and this is not a commercial. Excuse me. Gee, I, I terrible moment there just a couple of moments ago. Uh, somebody accused me of drinking tab straight. Whew. And, uh... uh <laughs> <laughs> and, and nevertheless, uh, uh, for those of you who uh, have not been keeping aware, au courant, with um, life as it has lived, uh, I would like to tell you, this you might feel good about it, that you can buy at any candy counter now, you can buy for 10 cents a roll of sour grapes. Ah, it's just call them sour grapes. Don't they use that expression here in the East or the West? Uh, is that only a Midwestern expression? Many's the time I can remember. Many's the time uh, I have heard the expression used. Sour grapes, boy. Sour grapes. That's what the Cub fans used to say to the White Sox fans when the White Sox would be in eighth place and the Cubs were pushing seventh. Sour grapes. Oh, oh. Another thing. Uh, for this is uh, our little uh, keep up with. Uh, I'm adjusting our there. Keep up with our times department. Do you know that you can also buy a tube of kindness? Yeah, isn't it Helena Rubinstein turns out kindness? <laughs> sure, you can also buy a tube of compassion if you like. And uh, I imagine uh, in some parts of the country you can buy tubes of hate. You can buy bias. You can buy little things like uh, ennui. Uh, Very, uh, what you got, you got a little message in there for us? No? All right. Okay, now, I'll, I'll sit in there. Uh, I. I'm, the other day, I'm standing in the supermarket. Uh, how many of you read labels in supermarkets? They're great. I can tell you the ingredients and some of the doggone to stuff you ever saw in your life. There's some fantastic ingredients. And I uh, who is it? Who is this on the radio that's always telling me those ingredients are, are deadly poison? Who is this? Somebody? Oh yes, that's right. Turns your teeth green. Well, uh, would you please sneak in a little sinister music there? One of the great labels of all time. That's it. Bring it on there, Dad. How long has it been since you have read the label instructions on a can of rat powder? <laughs> This ain't the soupy sales show. You will to get something in the face, but it will not be a custard pie. Quack, quack. Yes, this is on the label of one of my favorite rat poisons. In this package, delicious meat flavor, natural grain flavor. Each formulation has nest nuggets for extra kill, the carry back bait for killing rats in their own nest. <laughs> Hermetically sealed to stay delicious, fresh, and. Deadly. (laughs) Yes, why this exclusive combination offers you the best chance of complete rat control. Number one, rats are smart and fussy. To outsmart them, you have to think. Like a rat. Yes, experts know that rats, given half a chance, would like to eat as well as us lucky human beings, given half a chance. Keep that in mind. (laughs) His friends, rats like variety. Two separate bait flavors. Meat and delicious whole grain. Mean rats can feed cafeteria style. With each rat picking out (laughs) what he (laughs) likes best. Yes, and remember, these deadly nuggets are tasty, easy to carry, and loaded with extra killing power. Flavor and smell are kept fresh and appealing. It seals flavor and freshness in. Yes, it makes it much more appealing. Open the top of your two special feeders, fill them from the handy pour spouts on the sides, and then stand back. (laughs) I'm just thinking like a rat. Wouldn't it be terrible if rats really thought this way, though? (laughs) Poor little rat scurrying along the sideboard. All I want is just just a little morsel of grain for the Keatings back home. To raise my little brood of harmless poverty-stricken little four-footed, furry, soft warm creatures. Oh, it's not easy with the winds howling outside with poverty everywhere, to hold together a hank of bone, a squidging of hair just to keep my little nest. Ah, here. Look, that nice human being has left out for me, this beautiful nugget of delicious flavor in sealed. I shall take it home to the kitties. And once again, man has triumphed over evil. (laughs) what a rotten son again! what's this here oh yes yes indeed well of course the secret ingredient syndrome we have gone over that uh there's there's one secret ingredient of, of one of these uh, cough medicines have you seen that one containing silencium i wonder can you see this uh, guy discovering this new this new element and, you know, the periodic table. Uh, hey, did you ever do that when you were a kid, when you're sitting in, in, uh, in a class, chemistry or something? And you, you uh, look up there and you see the periodic table. And they had them in all different colors. You know, they wanted to all the way on up. And then they had those blank ones at the end. And those were known elements that had not yet been discovered. Very exciting. And that we had this teacher, and and he he would always talk about those unknown elements, and I couldn't quite figure out how they. Yeah, i you know just a kid with a fuzzy type head. Now I'm not a kid with a fuzzy type head, and so you know I stand there, and I'd, I'd look up there, and and I'd, I'd see these these mystery elements at the end. And you know that at one point I had an idea that that's what they were putting in these various toothpastes. Because they were very secret. Oh, they didn't, they didn't fool around. I remember there was a secret ingredient. One time, Bob Hope had this toothpaste on his show. And they had this secret ingredient. Uh, what was that famous secret ingredient in the Bob Hope toothpaste? Um, uh, you couldn't find it on any, uh, any periodic table. And yet, they talked about it was a secret ingredient that took yellow off. And just took it off. I don't know where it went, but it, uh, it took it off. It combined with the Yellow. Made the yellow blue, I suspect. But nevertheless, it was a secret ingredient, and that's it then. Look at the secret ingredient. And then I began to invent my own secret ingredients, like no borkium. I like that. Uh, Or uh, gone. (laughs) I can think of some awful ones. Oh, wow. You know, uh, not only, gee, I wish we had the word. Uh, Yeah, well, okay. It's all right. Don't look so confused. That's just a little of that tab. And now, while uh, would you please bring me, if you will, Bob, uh, just bring me a little raunchy, crummy, rotten, hairy music. This is for now. Hold it there for a second. And I'll tell you why. Last night I told you about how I was going to talk to these listeners. You know, guys that listen to the show. They're spread out all over the globe now, and uh, they're very, very thinly scattered. There's no question about it. There's no concentration. They're very thinly scattered. About every couple of months, I get a letter from one listener who is in Leningrad. He writes to me, Yeah, don't ask me how. <coughs> very, very interesting, but I get this letter. I get letters from guys in New Guinea. I don't get many letters from guys in uh, Burbank, but I get plenty of letters from guys in places like uh, Zamboanga. But nevertheless, last night, I promised, uh, I told I think I mentioned it last night on the air that I was going to talk to, on my ham station, I was going to talk to these hams who were listeners and no longer are because they're in Antarctica. And so we made contact last night. We were all by ourselves. Oh, yeah, it work, worked like a charm. I got on the air and uh, way at the high end of the 20-meter phone band, and there they were. And uh, I laid the signal right down there to Birdland, and they laid their signal right down here. And I asked him, I says, what kind of, what is it like? What kind of weather? The guy comes on, he hollers, excelsior! <laughs> I come drifting up over the Antarctic Sea, excelsior, he hollers. And then, and I says, well, what, what, what is it like there? What kind of, what, what's the scene there, Jack? And he says, oh, boy, this ain't Jersey. I says, well, uh, that's probably true. What is it like? And he began to, discuss, it's summertime down there now. Yeah, it's zero. That's right. He says the weather, it, he, he that was a warm day. It was exactly zero when he was talking to me, and it was pure daylight. They have daylight all the time down there. And he says the sun goes around in a big circle. He says it just goes right around the horizon. They can see it all day long, 24 hours a day. And he says the wind comes howling down over those ice flows, and once in a while a plane lands on skis, you know, it just comes whistling down. And his shack, his ham shack was forty feet below the surface of the ice forty feet below the surface of the ice and he had his feed line went right up in in an insulated tube right up through the ice and he had his antenna set up right on top of the ice up there and they got a tremendous amount of very peculiar kinds of propagation (laughs) factors going up there because there's ice and all kinds of uh... uh... magnetic sounds one thing another but he says it was forty feet below the surface of the ice itself. And he says this ice, of course, has never melts. It's just, it's there. It's been there since the beginning of time, apparently, at least beginning of Antarctica, as we know it now. And he says that, that as it begins to get uh, winter there, the sun dips lower and lower until all of a sudden one day it just dips below the horizon, just a little bit like a big ping-pong ball, and then bounces back up just keeps going like that but as it dips below the horizon it gradually stays below longer and longer until suddenly four months nothing blackness and the, he says it's the it's the, it's the blackness like you could never never possibly comprehend unless you've ever seen it he says oh is it black and we're 40 feet below the surface in our ham rig. In our ham station done. He's a physicist. And he had to take time out once. This is, this is, this is an interest you. He had to take time out because every 15 minutes they fire off something that goes off automatically. It's like a, an automatic, uh, projectile of some kind. Like a rocket. That's fired off that goes up through the layers, the electronic layers above the, above the Antarctic, above the pole there. It just cuts right up through and sends signals back. And he, he was a physicist, this ham. And his job was to monitor that thing. It would go off, and then it would be nothing. He couldn't hear anything for about ten minutes while this thing takes off. And then he would sit back and talk to you again. Boy. KC4 USB, Birdland. Speaking of rare esoteric radio stations, this is... W O R A M at F M in New York, 40 feet below the surface of this writhing town of sin and corruption. Here's Gene Shepard oh. of the New York Times. Holy smokes. It is almost impossible to describe the New York Times. Almost every other newspaper in this country can be put into a tiny capsule description faster, funnier, easier to read, hard hitting, dynamic. You just can't do that with the New York Times. And why? Well, because it's an entire way of life. Sometimes it's faster. Sometimes it's funnier. Sometimes it's dynamic. Sometimes it's easy to read. Sometimes it's hard to read. Sometimes it's difficult to get through. But it's about all of life, which is exactly the way life itself is. And maybe that's why the New York Times is totally irreplaceable to those who read it. Why don't you try it? The New York Times. Start home delivery today. Call Murray Hill 70700. That's M U 70700. The New York Times. If you're without it, you're not with it. W B A I New York. You know, I, I have to, I have to admit, a uh, terrible, uh, terrible admission. And uh, it began about the second or third week that I arrived here in New York City. I began to be hung on the Times very seriously. And this has nothing to do with a commercial. It is, a, it is an awful, awful sickness. And nothing else, no other paper that I know of, I can read papers, a lot of papers for many different things, but no paper replaces, I seriously mean this, replaces the times. Boy, you can argue, you can put it down, you can get mad at it, <laughs> you can do almost anything you want, but, man, you just cannot. Uh, let's get on with a couple of these other things. You got another little whoopee in there for me? Hit it there, Dan. <laughs> The bright clear taste in beer. Miller Highlight, the champagne of bottled beer. That's Miller Highlight. The happy sound is about famous Miller High Life beer that has soared in popularity. Because millions more recognize the traditional quality and heritage of an unequaled, unchanging, truly great beer. Wherever people are living better, you'll find Miller High Life in handy take-home cans, on tap, or in the familiar crystal clear bottles. Next time you want the very finest, ask for Miller High Life, the champagne of bottle beer. Sparkling. Flavorful. Distinctive. I wonder how Chinese beer is. I'll have to ask him about happiness. Mandarin House? You got Mandarin House? Which uh, is it? The Mandarin House down on Thirteenth Street, my old hangout. Oh man, I'll tell you. If you if uh, if you ever have the urge to make the Village scene, this is is uh, truly mall. My favorite uh, Chinese joint of them all. The old, yeah, it is. Let's face it. What? What do you mean? Don't you? you that's in, that's Indiana French. Truly, mon. You'll find the <laughs> my favorite my favorite Chinese joint. Seriously, is the Mandarin House down on Thirteenth Street. I've been hanging out there. Uh, oh, gee. I was there with Jerry Tomer, who is the critic for the Post and ex of the Village Voice. Jerry, Ed Fancher, and Danny Wolf and I, all four of us at that time beginning, uh, struggling around with the village voice one night, went into the Mandarin House the second night it was open and became hung that night. And if you don't know the Mandarin House, it's on 13th Street between 6th and 7th. Right down in the village, and it's a beautiful place. It's downstairs. You go down underneath it. The food is fantastic. North Chinese, they have Chinese food from all over China. And some of the greatest chefs in the world in their food, in their genre, have worked there. This is the Mandarin House. Seven days a week, they've got a great bar. And Emily Kuo is at the controls. And she's one of the best of the operators of Chinese restaurants in the country. It's a great restaurant. Mandarin House, okay? And let's see, we have a final note here from Rover. I see all over, uh, they're talking about the the new, you know, uh, the funny thing about the Rover, uh, I've I've already seen at least three cars that have come out since the Rover 2000 first hit the streets about a year ago, Uh, at least three automobiles that are almost dead ringers for the Rover. They've been terribly influenced by this car. I can tell you some of them right offhand. I'm not going (laughs) to. But uh, uh, I'll tell you one little thing about the rover. I I do know that one of the larger automobile companies, one of the big three, just bought under another name four rover automobiles from New York. And they are now being uh, dissected and taken apart and studied in Detroit right now tonight. And uh, if you're interested in really a great car, it's the Rover 2000. And before you make a plan to buy a car this summer, you should investigate this. It's truly a fine automobile. goes like a bomb. Uh, it drives beautifully and is probably the safest car ever built. And certainly one of the prettiest. The Rover 2000. And if you'd like pictures of it, just send your name and address to me, Rover, uh, <laughs> 1440 Broadway. That's W-O-R, okay? All right. Now you know uh, uh, I have to I have to carry this a little bit further. This this lure of the wild, this lure of the. Did, did I ever tell you about the time that I worked a ham? Uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the greatest ham contacts that I ever had uh, was the time I worked a ham uh, who was operating his station, and he only did it for a very brief time because of of the situation that came about. He was operating his station. Uh, on a four-masted, square-rigged schooner. It was a foreign schooner, you know, that one of the old Barkantines, one of the old sailing ships that was sailing around. In fact, there's still a half a dozen of the big sailing ships around, They're usually owned by something like the Danish Navy or, the, or Annapolis or the Coast Guard Academy or something like that. Well, one night, I, I was on the air. It's been, oh, five, six years ago. And I hooked this station. I talked to this guy, and we were on code, both of us. And he was on this sailing ship. And uh, we talked for about, oh, a half an hour. He was German. And, uh, of course, uh, he, we, we spoke in Ham Talk, which is a, a very special talk. And we were able to get along fine. We talked for about a half an hour. And I'll never forget it because it was dark and stormy out. He was telling me he was aboard this, this uh, 4 masted schooner, And uh, we had a great conversation. We had a great uh, contact for a bit. And that was the end of it. And uh, he says, uh, if I ever hear you out again, I'll talk, give you a call, and we'll we'll chew the fat. And they were somewhere out in the Atlantic at the time. Well, about, oh, perhaps ten days, maybe two weeks later, I picked up the newspaper, and it turns out that that ship had gone down with all hands on board. You remember that story? The German training ship that sank with the cadets on board? I'll never forget that night. There's a curious thing. I keep remembering that contact. And, uh, there was another, uh, you want to hear some more about some other weird contact? <laughs> you know, people, when they think of amateur radio, they, 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 uh, they have uh, all kinds of cockeyed ideas about it. It is not a bunch of little boys sitting around interfering with television. Uh, it is not. And it is not a bunch of little boys sitting around, uh, relaying SOSs. Uh, it, it definitely, you know. The other night, I got a letter from a kid, and he said, "Shepard," he says, "ever since you've been reading Robert Service uh, on the on the air, he says, I've been getting the fantastic itch." And he says, and "I went out, and I got a couple of volumes of old Robert Service poetry. I picked it up in this old used bookstore, and he said, I've been reading this stuff, and he says, there's one poem. He says, I, he says, I can't stand it. He says, every time I read it at night, I read this poem." And and he says, uh, it it, it makes uh, this terrific itch go through me. (laughs) It's a terrible, terrible feeling of unrest. Now, I think this is a male problem. I don't think women suffer from this same problem. Uh, And you know, it's connected with amateur radio. Uh, There is a peculiar, strange, uh, bittersweet taste uh, to this odd kind of... uh, uh, it's, It's a peripheral activity in man's world. Uh, that's the adventure, the adventuring. There aren't many Conrad's born. I realize that now. Uh, I realize there aren't many people. If I if I were to walk up to the average guy and say, how would you like a trip? In fact, I said it today here, here in the station. I came down. I said, I said, you know, I had a chance to go to the Antarctic uh, a couple of a couple of uh, years ago. I had a chance to go up to the Antarctic, or down. I guess it would be down to the Antarctic and spend two months down there. About a year or so ago, I was given that opportunity, and this guy who is an 18-year-old kid here at the station. I told him this. He looked at me like a nut. He says, "Well, what do you want to go there for?" I says, "What? What I want? I I didn't ex- You know, I didn't expect that kind of a question. I thought, well, gee, it should be self-evident. Any male would want to go to the, you know, the Antarctic for a couple of months just to be there. And I said, well, gee, just to go, you know, to go down and be there." What for? I said, well, I don't really know, come to think of it. Uh, why does anybody, why does Why does a guy want to get shot to the moon? Why does a guy want to write a Broadway play? Don't tell me for money. It's uh, uh, a little more to it than that. Uh, why does a guy, uh, guy want to walk on a tightrope across Grand Canyon? Why did Lindbergh want to fly the ocean? Who knows, you know? It's, just, it's very hard to explain this. And I know one thing. To those people who don't understand, they never will understand. Uh, I, have yet, I have yet to be able to, to seriously convince a non-understanding why I wanted to go to the headwaters of the Amazon. Why I wouldn't miss the chance to spend some time with headhunters in almost totally unexplored country It's very hard to explain it. Uh, in spite of all the uh, so-called danger that might be around, maybe it's because of that danger. I, I remember one time sitting at a table uh, at a lunch table. We're all sitting around, you know, they got the baskets of rolls in front of you in the water, carafts and the the coffee they're bringing and the white tablecloth. There's a speaker droning on up there, talking away and blowing it out of his ears. And sitting next to me is a guy who who I've gotten to be, uh, you know, he's he's, uh, one of these people I've gotten to know quite well uh, as as a sort of offbeat, strange, not official friendship. I see him and that's it. Lowell Thomas. And, I mean, whatever you think of Lowell Thomas, he's been there, man, I'll tell you. He's been everywhere. He's been everywhere from Tibet. He has burrowed his way through the ice <laughs> in the South Pole and the North Pole. He's been everywhere. You see? And I'm sitting next to Lowell Thomas in, in, in this very chic restaurant with a chandeliers hanging. And this guy up there is going, The speaker is going on. And and I turned to to Thomas and, uh I, I said to him, uh, just came out, you know, just had to come out. I said, to, uh, does, do people ever, ever look at you uh, as though you're some kind of a nut? And he looked at me and he says, all the time. And to the person, I suppose, who believes in a little split-level house with a two-car garage, who plays it close to his vest all of his life, that is true. Anybody who doesn't is some kind of a nut. You really are. And and the other guy, of course, maybe he also, he also, I suspect, the guy who lives in that little two-level, split-level, two-car garage world, I suspect that he has to take that kind of adjustment. It makes him feel better about it. It makes him feel uh, justified in just quietly getting fat for 74 years. Uh, never seen anything outside of the freeway, his lousy little two weeks at Miami Beach, uh, and the inside of an automatic elevator. It, it makes him feel justified. It really must. And, and this, and of course, there's a lot of kids uh, <laughs> who have not yet given up. And this kid says, Shepard, he says, there's one poem. You've got to read it on the air. He says, I can't stand it. Every time I read it, he says, I don't sleep for three hours. Give me some rotten, raunchy music. Bring it in there. Oh, yeah. Rotten, clummy. Yellow dog hairy boots. Papa, tee, Yeah. I was going to drink my water. Just suck it up. Yeah, I'm going to sleep out in the kitchen with my pizzas in the hall just because you did what you did, baby. You know what you did. This is called The Spell of the Yukon. I wanted the gold and I sought it. I scrabbled and mucked like a slave. Was it famine or scurvy? (laughs) I fought it. I hurled my youth into a grave. I wanted the gold, and I got it. Came out with a fortune last fall. Yet somehow life's not what I thought. Somehow gold isn't all. No, there's the land. Have you seen it? It's the cussedest land that I know. From the big dizzy mountains that screen it to the deep, Death like valleys below. Some say God was tired when He made it. Some say it's a fine land to shun. Maybe. But there's some that would trade it for no land on earth. And I'm one. You come to get rich. Damn good reason. You feel like an exile at first. You hate it like hell for a season. And then you're worse than the worst. It grips you like some kind of sinning, it twists you from foe to a friend. It seems it's been since the beginning. It seems it will be to the end. I've stood in some mighty-mouthed hollow that's plumb full of hush to the brim. I've watched the big husky sun wallow in crimson and gold and grow dim till the moon set the pearly peace gleaming and the stars tumbled out neck and crop and I've thought that I surely was dreaming with the peace of the world piled on top the summer oh the summer no sweeter was ever the sunshiny woods all the thrill the grayling a leap on the river the bighorn sheep asleep on the hill the strong life that never knows harness the wilds where the carabao call the freshness the freedom the farness I'm stuck on it all. The winter, (laughs) the brightness that blinds you, the white land locked tight as a drum, the cold fear that follows and finds you, the silence that bludgeons you dumb, the snows that are older than history itself, the woods where the weird shadows slant, the stillness, the moonlight, the mystery. I bade them goodbye. I can't there's a land where the mountains are nameless and the rivers all run God knows where there are lives that are erring and aimless and deaths deaths that just hang by a hair there are hardships that nobody reckons there are valleys unpeopled and still there's a land oh it beckons and beckons and I want to go back and I will They're making my money diminish. I'm sick of the shit, sick of the taste of champagne. Thank God. When I'm skinned to a finish, I'll pike to the Yukon again. I'll fight, and you bet it's no sham fight. It's hell. But I've been there before, and it's better than this by a damn sight. So me for the Yukon, once more. There's gold, and it's haunting, and haunting. It's luring me on. As of old, Yet it isn't the gold I'm wanting. So much as just finding the gold. It's the great big broad land way up yonder. It's the forests where silence has least. It's the beauty that thrills me with wonder. It's the silence that fills me with peace. The spell of the Yukon. was a great line. So it isn't the gold I'm wanting so much as finding the gold. Hey, you know, uh, one one thing I'll, I uh, have to read to you here about comes right out of out of Fela's house. There we go. Comes out of uh, his his. Uh, this is Robert Service's. Uh, I suppose you can call it dedication in the book. Just a little line he has in the front of it. And this is a collection of Robert service and it's a, it's a it's really a quotation out of one of his poems. And he says, I have no doubt at all, the devil grins as seas of ink I spatter. Ye gods forgive my literary sins. The other kind don't matter. <laughs> Boy, if that is if that isn't the description of the writer's code, completely right there. You know, speaking of uh, speaking of that that, that peculiar lure that you can't quite get out. Uh, one winter, I'll have to I'll have to tell you uh, uh, probably one of the reasons why I am so drawn to the Arctic and to the winter. Uh, most people that I know today in the cities are afraid of it. They they they're afraid of cold weather. They're afraid of snow and so on. But one time I'm this kid, see, and I got this. Did I tell you ever tell the story about the time Schwartz and I, one one winter, Schwartz had this uncle, and he was always telling me about his uncle. You know how how when you're a kid you get to know about your friends relatives and they assume almost a mythical status. Uh, every kid has got this great uncle. He's always talking about this great uncle that lives in Pittsburgh, you know, and it's always doing that stuff. Or he's got this this great brother somewhere who's in the army. And he's doing these fantastic things. Well, Schwartz used to always come around and tell, and, and constantly he was he was referring to this great uncle that he was going to visit one day, and uh, his uncle lived in Moose Jaw. Moose Jaw. Oh boy, you lay that one down and try to pick it up. Moose Jaw. That does not sound like the Bronx. That does not sound like <laughs> Big Sur, you know. That's Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Well, uh, this this uh, uh, one, one year, it's the only time ever as a kid, you know, I'm constantly impressed by kids who spend holidays away from home. To me, that's the epitome of... Of sophistication, you know the kind of kid that goes to prep school and he spends his Christmas vacation in Nassau with his friend Charles. Holy smokes, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> it mean, always has impressed me. I, I uh, I'm, somehow I'm a real sucker for that kind of life. That's that's the F Scott Fitzgerald life. I I uh, don't recall the name of the story. Do any of you remember the name of the story that Fitzgerald wrote, one of his great short stories, about going home from college? And he decided instead, instead of going home, yeah, that's a swanky rich kid story. In, instead of going home, uh, he was asked by this friend of his, this is a short story that Fitzgerald wrote, to go and visit his relative. Uh, his father, I believe it was, this kid's, his friend's relative, and the, they, they, they went, I believe it was in an airplane. i not, yeah, I think they took a plane or a train and then a plane. But they went way out west to where this kid's parents lived, and he was very quiet about it, never said much about them. And then they arrived out there, and it was this wild fantasy story. How many of you remember that story? Do you know the name of it? Well, it's it's got one of the great uh, short story names of all time, The Diamond As Big As the Ritz. <laughs> and they went out there, and this, his 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 friend's parents lived on a, on a mountain that was a diamond. Do you recall that? And they had he had this fantastic army, and oh wow, it was just a wild scene. And, and I thought, you know, that's that's an interesting concept that Fitzgerald wrote a story about a a kid's uh, friend relative ha- having this fantastic wild scene of almost pure uh, imagery. It was not true. Well, Schwartz kept telling us about his uncle. And about a week before one Christmas, uh, he he came rushing around. He says, hey, he said, I just got a letter from my uncle. And he said that I can come to spend Christmas vacation in Saskatchewan, in Moose Jaw. And he says, would you like to go? He says, if I want to bring another kid, I can bring another kid. Well, I went back home and you know, that was a very difficult thing to ask my mother, you know, not to spend Christmas at home. You know, Christmas the whole scene, that's a big deal. And so uh I, I thought about this and I, I oh it just seemed so great. And I finally did it. I went home and I said, Ma, can I go and spend Christmas vacation with uh, Paul's Paul's uncle? And she says, Why well, certainly, you know, thinking in terms of the next block where I would come home every night. And she says, So where do they live? I said, um, Molly lived by the North Pole somewhere. She says, where? I said, well, Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. There was a long pregnant pause. And she says, isn't that by Canada? I said, that is Canada. And it was a giant argument at home that night. The old man, of course, immediately he immediately he vibrated. The, oh, yeah, come on, let the kid go. Oh, wow. Because he could always see himself going to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Well, the time came. We were out of school. Finally. It was okay. It was all set. And I got a new sheepskin coat for the scene. And we took the bus, the Greyhound bus, out of Chicago. And that Greyhound bus rolled west and north. I had never been out of Chicago in that direction ever in my life. And we rolled west and north through the snow and the ice. And it got colder and colder until all of a sudden we were in North Dakota. Have you ever been in North Dakota? In the dead of winter, oh. Ooh. Wow. It is re so cold that all the windows of the bus were frozen solid, just solid white you couldn't see anything, and the heater was blowing puffs of hot air through the bus, and guys would get off and on with big fur hats and guys would come in and they actually had can you imagine guys getting on the bus with with uh, snowshoes sticking on their back? yeah they they'd get on from some farm somewhere they'd ride for a mile and they'd hop off of the snowshoes wild and i couldn't couldn't stand it. it was so great <laughs> it seemed like after 1700 hours of traveling we arrived at the canadian border the big time way out there the saskatchewan border this little tiny white house sitting on the prairies and the guy with the big helmet got on big official looking thing and he checked to see if if me and schwartz weren't carrying seven jugs of whiskey or opium or heroin or something And we sat there, we're all excited. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are looking at my, my dop kit. And we drove on into the frozen north, and we finally arrived at Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I can't describe to you that town. It lays on the prairie all by itself. For those of you who have ever been there, you know, it lays on the prairie with nothing around it. Not even really so much as a tree. In fact, at night, you know... You can stand in Moose Jaw. If you stand up on your toes, you can see Regina. You really can. You can see the lights of Regina 50 miles away. It's that flat. And right in the middle of the town, the temperature is 43 below zero the day we got there. And we stepped out of that bus and that wind screamed past us and it was so cold, it was unbelievably cold. I mean, to somebody who thinks that you know, zero is cold 43 below zero and it was so exciting I was itching all over the place and right in the middle of town they have two big glass buildings that are transparent, green glass that have hot springs in them in the middle of 40 degree below zero temperature the hot springs bubble up and the people swim in their bathing suits boy, match that to towns you've seen I'll tell you and They have hockey. The guys are playing hockey, forty below zero. And you walk down the street, and if you if you don't walk uh, quickly enough and get out of the air quick enough, all over the back of your coat and all up and down your sleeves and your mittens and your hair and your hat and your shoes get covered with horror frost just because of the the uh, uh, the evaporation, the perspiration through the cloth. Wow, Jaw, uh, Saskatchewan. And at night, you can come out, the winter, that winter wind is just quietly laying on the prairies there like some kind of a soft blanket. You can feel it. It isn't hard. It just lays there. And it's so cold that you can hear the sound of crickets in their, in their tiny winter holes 25 miles away chewing their cuds. It's that cold and that silent. And you look up and you see those northern lights... Just laying up there against the sky, moving back and forth like great big neon green, blue, soft purple and silver snakes moving back and forth. Crackling up through the sky there, and a sliver of moon, oh wow. Yeah, the spell of the Yukon.